Hello, and welcome to the Books That Built Me podcast, where you can discover the books that inspire your favourite authors. In this episode, I talked to author of Me Before You, Jojo Moyes, about how she found her voice as a novelist, why journalism taught her that there are great stories in the smallest things, if only you know where to look, and why National Velvet is a more radical feminist text than The Woman's Room. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Annabelle's. It's such a treat to be here. I'm Helen Brockbeck, and I'm the host of The Books That Built Me, and it's an even bigger treat to have with us tonight Jojo Moyes. She's a writer whose exquisite skill at weaving unputdownable dramas, and those beautiful stories have kept her at the top of the bestseller lists, not just here in the UK, but all over the world. So, um, we're going to talk about the books that she loves, and we're also going to talk about the books that she writes. So please join me in welcoming Jojo Moyes. Even nicer one. Who has, who has read me for you? <laughs> so we're going to talk a bit about the books that have inspired your writing, but before we, before we do that, I just want to come and talk a little bit about after you and ask you what inspired you to write a sequel to a, the book that I kind of thought there could be no sequel to me before you. Um, well, I actually wrote two books after I wrote Me Before You and uh, I've never revisited a book. I've never done a sequel, never had any intention to it. In fact, I've tended to believe that it's cost so much imagination and effort to get my protagonists together at the end of something that I'm pretty convinced that if I revisited them, they would be arguing over whose turn it is to take the rubbish out and everybody would be deeply disappointed. Um, but in the case of Me Before You, I... Uh, two things happened that meant it was different to the other books. One is that it provoked uh, a kind of unusually fervent response in readers. I was somebody until that book that never troubled the bestseller lists in 10 years. I had never really provoked more of a response from readers than, you know, two hastily scrawled um, <laughs> pen pal letters, you know, that had been forwarded by my publishers a month. Uh, and then suddenly the age of social media and the uh, creation of my own website with a contact button, that was a thing I probably did think twice before doing it again, um, meant that I was, by at the end of the first year, I was getting hundreds of emails a week and then it never really stopped and lots of people wanted to know what happened to her afterwards. Uh, and because I started working on the film and I was writing the script, it meant that Louisa Clark just never left my head in the way that other characters tended to. And I found I was asking myself the same question, what would you do if you had been involved in something as profound and uh, terrifying and heartbreaking and, you know, life-changing as that event? And, and I started to think, well, I didn't think that she would sail off happily into the sunset. I mean, she would bounce around Paris. I thought that if you'd been involved at close range with something like that, that you'd actually be struggling. Um, and I often start a book with a visual in my head, and I just had a visual of her standing on top of the building, not trying to commit suicide, but just the sense of isolation, the, the removal from her old life. And from that scene, I, I started working on the book. And and she and she goes she goes back to a, a small a small job not the kind of job that Will had painted for her and and I wondered what one of the things I think you do well in every novel is is you do write about those very ordinary people who do the do the small small jobs and I kind of wondered why you didn't give your characters more heroic VIP of so and so to run um, because how many of us end up doing that. You know, I think the, the great disappointment of adult life is that we're not all going to become the VIP of so-and-so. You know, we sort of expect we will, and then somehow we're working in a bar, and we're 25, and we're going, well, how did this happen? And I, I wanted her to work in an airport bar because I thought there's no greater metaphor for a stuck life than watching somebody else take off hour after hour in front of you. Um, and so I've done those jobs, and I know what it's like when you're being told to upsell and you know wear your corporate t-shirt with pride, and um, it's awful. 
Uh, and I just, I quite like writing about really appalling people, and her boss is so appalling that I enjoyed writing he's, him tremendously. He's a, he's a fabulous character. Not based on anybody I've had personal experience <laughs> on. But you get, you get his kind of pooterishness so well. You really nail that small-minded, you know, petty, middle management horror. Of it's a great, great humour as well. Um, so, I can't wait for everybody to read after you. I'm slightly giving up on the microphone. Can we? Can you hear me if I'm talking loudly? Good. Much no, more important no, to speak. Some bit that I can't. Ah, here we go. Phil Sherrill's a bit. Much more important for you to hear JJ than to hear me. I'm just here to prompt. Um, because I want to come and talk to you now about the first book that you've chosen, which is National Velvet, Enid Bagnold. Who has read National Velvet? Who remembers Liz Taylor in the film? Tell us, tell us a little bit about, about, about the book and about the story and then why you've chosen it. Well, the first thing is, forget, for those of you who've only seen the film and not read the book, forget everything you know. This is not a glorious Technicolor um, dream story of a plucky, beautiful girl who you know rides a, an amazing looking horse to victory. The, the book is far funnier and grittier and more subversive and Oddly, is a really radical feminist text, uh, given that it was written in the 30s. Because what it has at its heart is not just a girl uh, who, incidentally, does not look like Elizabeth Taylor. She has she looks a bit like a goat from all the descriptions. She's got pale, tufty hair, and she looks a bit sickly, and she's got terrible teeth. She has to wear braces. She has to wear braces, and her um, <laughs> her sisters have all grown up into rather graceful-looking greyhounds with kind of beautiful long straight hair and she's very much the ugly duckling um don't know why this resonated with me when i was young uh but she she has this enormous will and a huge heart and what i really loved and why i call it a radical feminist text is not only does it have at its heart a girl who does something rather than is defined by how other people see her or how she looks or what she buys or who she ends up with because she doesn't actually have a boyfriend. It's about her mother. Her mother, Araminti, swims the channel a decade, two decades before um, Violet Brown is born and wins gold sovereigns, the gold sovereigns that allow her daughter to go on and enter the national. And when rereading this the other day, which was such a pleasure, which um, wasn't true for other books that I'm about to talk about, I was really struck by the fact that you very rarely see really positive, non-Walton-esque relationships between mothers and daughters in fiction. And, and this has been a bit of a bugbear of mine, because actually I've said in the past that most mothers in fiction uh, are either hideous, um, you know, interfering, uh, yeah, Mrs. Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, or they're pretty much bumped off at the start. So that in all fairy tales, the mother dies. In, you know, oh, it's so a classic that, trope, get rid of the parents, isn't it? Exactly, but definitely the mother. We yeah. definitely have to get rid of the mother. And what you have in this is not a kind of Hollywood-esque, hearts and flowers, expressive love, you have Araminti, who is the most solid, I mean, that's my delicate way of putting it, <laughs> unexpressive, stern character. And I, I actually just wanted to read you a little description of her, if that's okay, because yes. it, um, I love the way this book is described. And why this is described as a children's book, I have no idea, because actually it's far um, more poignant and clever than that. So I've done the cardinal sin of folding my pages, but don't judge me. <laughs> Mr. Brown was, with dignity, the head of the family, but Mrs. Brown was the standard of the family. When Velvet had fallen off the pier at age of six, her mother went in thirty feet after her, sixteen stone, royal blue afternoon dress, a straight dive like the dive of an aging mammoth. The reporter from the West Worthing News came to make a story of it and said to Edwina, Your mother swam the channel, didn't she? Edwina nodded past her mother. Better ask her... What's past, past, young man, said Mrs. Brown heavily and shut her mouth and her door. My tailor's father had trained Mrs. Brown for her swim, trained her when she had been a great girl of 19, necklace, clumsy and incredibly enduring. Mine himself had been a flyweight boxer, killed his man because the wretched creature was in status lymphaticus, 
got exonerated and yet somehow disqualified, tramped the country, held horses, cleaned stables, drifted nearer and nearer to the racing world till he knew all about it except the feel of a horse's back. Arriving somehow in the ebb of Lewis races, he had been taken on by Mr. Brown for the slaughterhouse, for running errands and lately even for negotiating stock. Mrs. Brown stared at him when he came with a look of strange pleasure in her hooded eyes. My Taylor, the son of Father Taylor, he knew all about her, Taylor did. The only one who ever did. He knew what she was made of. He'd had the long, last ounce of her. He and the doctor at her five confinements, those men knew. Nobody else, ever. Mine was his son, and mine was welcome. Henceforth he ate with the family and lodged in the loose box. And Araminta Brown, embedded in fat, her keen hooded eyes hardly lifting the rolls above them, cooked admirably, ran the accounts, watched the shop, looked after the till, spoke seldom, interfered hardly ever, sighed sometimes because it would have taken a war on her home soil to have dug from her what she was born for, moved about the house, brought up her four taut daughters under her heavy eye, and thought of death occasionally with a kind of sardonic shrug. Nobody could have said exactly whether she had a dull brain or no. Ed and Mally and Meredith behaved themselves at a wink of one of her heavy eyes. Velvet would have laid down her stringy life for her. Oh, <laughs> wonderful! Isn't that wonderful? So, so, it's quite, so why? Tell me why this. When you found this book, and why, uh, in addition to the great mother and the strength of Velvet, it really meant something to you as a child. Well, firstly, I was a stringy child who was passionate about horses. Um, the similarity was that, like Velvet Brown, I had um, no horses in my family. My parents were artists who lived in central London. Um, but, like Velvet, I acquired a horse in my teens, slightly without telling my parents. And um, quite, quite difficult to um, stable a horse in the middle of... Uh East London? Uh, not at all. Really, <laughs> back in the 80s, um, which is when I was obviously early born, um, uh, there were lots of funny little stable yards around the east end of London, um, tucked behind kind of wooden doors, and it, it was an amazing place once you knew where to go. And I kept my horse under a railway arch behind Hackney Town Hall. Um, <laughs> in a little yard run by a man in a flat cap called Johnny Pinto, who used to sell all sorts of strange creatures to um, local restaurateurs. Um, I don't really like it. It wasn't your Mike Taylor there. No, it wasn't my Mike Taylor. Um, but I, I knew every park in London that you could count around illegally before the police would come and get you. And eventually my parents realised that I was deadly serious about this and helped me. And now I live in the country and I have 22 acres and I still have horses um, but there's something about a girl who is obsessed by horses that is absolutely terrifyingly unstoppable and I think it's the best thing that a child a young girl can learn because for a girl who was a weedy uh, child who attracted all the wrong sort of attention what having a horse gave me through my teens was the ability to move through london safely because people do not bother you on a horse they're usually absolutely terrified because they don't know anything about horses so i would go down the canals i would go around hyde park um i, I went anywhere on my horse i could go up and down steps he was he was brilliant um and so yeah i, I remember my i rode him home once and walked him up the front gate to see my mother, who opened the front door and, oh God, of course. Um, and she went and got him an apple or something. And we had a very gently inebriated alcoholic neighbor, and I still can picture him coming down the road. He used to sort of sway slightly, Mr. Butcher, and stopped about 20 paces away from his own front door at this horse's backside sticking out of the front gate. You could just see him thinking, should I have had that last one? <laughs> just, um, yeah, but it was, yeah, it was magical. And, and it's one of those weird things, having a horse in London when you're a kid, that you don't realise quite how strange it is until you reach adulthood and people say, you kept a horse well. Well, and that's a bit like Velvet, isn't it? You, I mean, the astonishing thing of deciding to go into the Grand National. She hadn't got a horse, or she had a broken, kind of broken down horse called, oh, well, not actually, what's the pie was it in the house? Was it was there a, a, a Dale or something? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then she wins this crazy horse, Pie, and they decide that he's a Grand National horse, and there she is. So I love this 
idea of you as a teenager reading this book and being filled with this spirit of adventure and then finding that through what's in that unstoppableness of you know I can I can win mm. it's a really really different kind of story from as you say from the ones that one was used to reading as, yeah. as a child there's no no, you know, no no witches no princes no nothing just a girl that can win so and there is something else in this book which is really interesting, which is after she wins, uh, her winnings at the Grand National are disqualified because she's not a boy, because obviously you know the rules preclude her accepting them and, and she has to speak to police and everything because they think there's been some terrible fraud perpetrated. And she becomes briefly a celebrity. And given that this book was written, I think, in 1932 or thereabouts, it is really interesting on, on the notion of sudden and modern celebrity and the, the way which she reacts to it and the way her family, and especially her mother, is smart enough to shut it down, to let it run its course a little and then to shut it down. And at the end of the book, it's almost anticlimactic. She just gets on with her life and the book says, you know, we're pretty sure something interesting will happen to her because, you know, she's that kind of girl, but we're just going to leave her there in her little... Yeah. house and getting on with her life with everybody settling down and um but it, it also has some of the funniest descriptions of family life she has this appalling little brother donald who looks like a cherub and is always lying or making himself sick or pretending that he's wet the bed or but it's there is nothing romanticized about family life in this book and in fact there's one scene sorry the very short paragraph that i want to read you where um Velvet confesses to her mother that she wants to win, she wants to compete in the national, and her mother gets it. And Velvet says, Who'll tell father? I'll tell your father, says Mrs. Brown, rocking her. Of this discussion, Velvet heard nothing. When the battle was over, she was given no more than the result. But in the deep of night, forces were involved that stirred Araminty Potter to love and to fury, and finally to love again. In meeting a hard, but as it turned out, a brittle opposition from her husband, Araminti rose like a sea monster from its home. After her years of silence, she grunted with astonishing anger, and William, powerless and exasperated, stung like a gnat upon a knotted hide. But something which was obstinate and visionary and childish bound my and Velvet and her mother together, and in the night, Araminti, in doing battle for their dreams, fought too for her own inarticulate honour. The difference ran to its end. They were shaken profoundly and slept in friendship at dawn. Mr. Brown rose next morning, spiritually bruised, feeling that he was going to be made ridiculous for that quiescent. That's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good description of married life. In general. <laughs> it's, such, it's such a treat to have read it in, as a grown-up. It's such yes. an unusual book. Yes. So, shall we... Which shall we... Oh, let's go next? straight from this to that. <laughs> Well, we're going to come to the woman's room, Marilyn French, which is another feminist ethic. Has anybody... Well, I tried to be really honest about my selection of books because I thought this could be like a sort of desert island discs of books where actually you quite like to choose things that make you look really impressive and intelligent. Um, and I could have just picked Proust or, you know, War and Peace or something. But I thought, actually, it's called The Books That Built Me. And I'm trying to actually be honest about books that had a profound effect on me at the time. And I remember thinking, after I read The Women's Room, and I, I was a voracious reader, I was an only child and there was no good television when I was young. Um, and so I remember reading The Women's Room at about 14 and getting three quarters of the way through it and thinking, I cannot finish this book because if I finish this book, I will never, ever get married to a man, ever. Because I was in terror and disgust with every single man based on this book. And and I did get married in the end to a perfectly nice friend. <laughs> but I think the the expression is consciousness raising, and I, I this book certainly opened my eyes to things that I thought were not there. Um, my parents, uh, while being possibly not the most conventional parents, definitely raised me with the idea that I could do anything, which is a slightly insane view I have carried through my life, and. Um, translated into things like laying floor joists and, you know, fixing my own car with mixed results, that wasn't right. And, and that thinking came partly as a result of reading books like this. So I was quite looking forward to rereading it for this. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what a 
oh dear, it's really, really serious. And, you know, it's, it's well written and it's certainly consciousness raising, but it is like being hit over the head with a copy of Spare Rib for several hours. Days. Days. So I'm, I'm going to apologize to Helen for making her read this book. I do think it's a worthwhile text to read if you are interested in feminism, but it's very much, in my book, of its time. And, and it would just be nice if there had been one male character who had the faintest redeeming Any kind feature of redeeming ever. Feature. You know, yeah, like um, the ability to give some hot sex, for example, or just a kind word, just anything. And, um, but they're what, all... Ghastly, yeah. unreconstructed. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a novel, but it's a kind of polemic mm. um, treatise on feminism and uh, why the patriarchy must be crushed, wrapped up in a novel. Mm. And like you, when I was a teenager, I thought this was the most important book I'd ever read, and I will rise up and burn yeah. my bra. Smash the patriarchy! Oh, I'm going to burn my bra because I'm part of Yes. Yes, but but actually, when I was when I got over the shock of rereading it, and uh, got over thinking, God, that's got a lot of pages, Jojo. Thank you. Actually, what I what I what it made me think was that the heroines in your books are very self-realised. They are quite they are quite feminine. So I wanted to talk to you about um, Lou in context of of that kind of it's it's like small town middle America. Uh, women who have been told they are, you know, useless. They've got no ambition, no hope. They come out to just stay in the kitchen and, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but Lou and Lou kind of comes in a way from that small town background. Your well, novels are pretty common. Yeah, I, I guess I was just interested in writing about a lot of the girls that I grew up with, who would frankly be appalled by any notion of feminism, but um, were. I would say they were just not ambitious because nobody had ever explained to them that they could be. And it, it wasn't due to any lack of anything on their part except perhaps a lack of imagination from people around them. And I think if you're lucky in life, you meet at least one person who makes you realise you can be more than the person that you are. And if you're lucky, it's at a point when you still have a way of changing your life. And I... Who was that for me? I... Well... Okay, when I was 17, I got engaged to a motor mechanic from Bethnal Green, and um, I was all set to leave one of those small lights, and it wasn't the best of relationships, if I'm honest. Uh, it was one of those ill-advised things you do when you're 17 and you think you know everything and you don't take any advice from anybody. And I was working for NatWest Bank at the time, make, writing statements for blind people with a braille machine. It's like a six-keyed typewriter. Um, it's one of my many skills. I can still type braille financial statements if anybody needs them. Um, and my very nice manager, um, while being kind of desperately boring in all sorts of ways, I think was very good at picking out people who he thought were perhaps not right for banking. And he sent me on a course in Oxford run by the Industrial Society. I don't know if they still exist, but it was a kind of well-meaning group that tried to encourage young people. And I got sent to Oxford for a week, and uh, as a girl with no ambition to go to university, no ambition to do anything at all other than you know, get married and maybe pop out a few mini mechanics from Bethnal Green, I went and I had my mind blown, because these were not Oxford graduates, these were just other young people from around the country, and we had a week of this intensive uh, training course where we did all sorts of, you know, those kind of exercises where you stay awake all night and plan things and you talk and you... And at the end of it, I thought, I want to be like them. They all had ambition. They all wanted to do things. They had very clear ideas for where they wanted to be. And my fiancé drove up to Oxford the following Saturday to pick me up. And I still remember being in a cafe, having done this all-night exercise, as his little orange mini pulled up, and having this sick feeling, like when you're at a party and your mum comes to get you when you're little and you're not ready to go home. And I broke off my engagement in the car on the way back, That's which went down really well. It was not. <laughs> it was not. It didn't go down well. And I applied for university. Uh, I was eighteen by then. I applied to go to Royal Holloway, um, which took me on the grounds that I've been working with blind people in a bank for eighteen months. So I'd obviously got some kind of ability to be committed to something. 
And from that point, my whole life changed because while I was at college, I started doing student journalism. I got a, a kind of tea making job on the Egan and Staines News, now sadly defunct. Um, and then from there, I won a bursary to go to the independent newspaper and trying to be a journalist. So in that four years, everything changed, and it all changed because of that one very kind of bland bank manager who who just pushed me out of my shell. And um, I've completely forgotten why I started with this. But, <laughs> oh, with Louise Clark, I guess it was the same thing. You know, she's not a stupid girl. She's not an unambitious person. She just, nobody's ever pointed out that she could be. And actually, there are, you know, there are darker reasons for her staying put. But essentially, she's like lots of women that I know who, who find it much safer not to push themselves out of their comfort zone. And, and I guess that's what interested me. It's not, you know, you talked about the VIP jobs. I think perhaps massive career success doesn't interest me as much as somebody making interesting discoveries about who they are and what they can be and how they can affect the world around them. I, and I, I mean, that's incredibly, incredibly successful. And very, she's a very warm, rounded cat. You are very encouraged, I think, by by her finding her, you know, her sense of confidence by being pushed a bit. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the problems of that are all explored in after, which we won't talk about. But we, so, what I want to come on to next, actually, is your is that career in journalism. Mm. So, um, because we're going to talk about a book that I have never come across, and so desperately don't want to give away to anybody, although we will. Um, the favourite book of reportage, actually, by John Carey, which is everything from Xenophon, you know, the five the five story destroyed Pompeii. Right up into uh, you know, the uh, actually into the Iraq War, pretty much, isn't it? So tell us about tell us about um, university journalism. Um, so one of the people who encouraged me into journalism was my uncle, who started off as a reporter on the Ghoul Times and ended up as controller of Yorkshire Television, uh, controller of Yorkshire Television programming at a time when Yorkshire Television was kind of huge. Uh, and he was really supportive of my attempts to get into journalism, and and not in a kind of proactive way, he didn't get me a job, but he was saying, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to read, and this was one of the books that he suggested to me, and I thought, oh great, one of those compilations, it's going to be lots of battles, and it's going to be lots of, you know, First World War, and Second World War, and I started reading it one night, and I think I, I didn't stop, because what's really great about this book is, yes, it goes from, as you say, from Pompeii all the way through pretty much to, well, when the book was published, I think it was the early 90s or late 80s, but it goes from the macro level, so on one level you are looking at wars, but right down to the micro level, and it contains some of the most jaw-dropping eyewitness accounts of events that I've read anywhere, and, and it made me realise what real journalism is, which is not necessarily rather dry reports of very important political or socio-economic you know, developments. What it is, it's about humans. It's about how we react in the midst of life-changing events. Um, and I was just going to, I hope none of you are uh, particularly queasy of stomach, but there is one short, um, well it's actually not that short, but I'm only going to read you a short bit. There's, there's one um, little piece that's always stayed with me, uh, dated to 1811, and it's by a woman who is reporting her own mastectomy. <laughs> if anybody feels sick, just do that. It's not going to be that bad. But the idea that, for me, it was kind of shocking that somebody could, that, that they were even performing mastectomies in 1811, but the idea that somebody could be conscious enough to be able to record it and do it in such a way that made me feel like I was there. And again, I'm, I'm going to kind of filter this because I don't want to make anybody feel kind of properly panicked. Um, but just to give you a sort of taste of it. Uh, so it says, My dearest Esther, and all my dears to whom she communicates this doleful ditty, will rejoice to hear that this resolution once taken was firmly adhered to in defiance of a terror that surpasses all description and the most torturing pain. 
Yet, when the dreadful steel was plunged into my breast, cutting through veins, arteries, flesh, nerves, I needed no injunctions not to restrain my cries. I began a scream that lasted unintermittingly during the whole time of the incision, and I almost marvel that it rings not in my ears still, so excruciating was the agony. When the wound was made and the instrument withdrawn, the pain seemed undiminished, for the air that suddenly rushed into those delicate parts felt like a mass of minute but sharp and forked poniards that were tearing the edges of the wound. But when again I felt the instrument, describing a curve, cutting against the grain, if I may so say, while the flesh resisted in a manner so forcible as to oppose and tire the hand of the operator, who was forced to change from the right to the left, then indeed I thought I must have expired. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but that's kind of extraordinary to A, be able to describe that to somebody. And she's writing this at a distance of many months because she said she could not describe it without experiencing it before. And, and, and it goes into kind of horrible, horrible detail. But that's reportage. I mean, that is absolutely reportage. You are there with her experiencing what she experiences and it tells you something about the time it tells you something extraordinary about the time and and this that's one very small slightly strange example but the, the you know it's everything from very well-known writers to complete nobody's in this book and it, it is the most fascinating just window into lots of different ages and lots of different times when I was reading it, one of the things that struck me was that incredible immediacy that you bring to your own writing. And I wanted to know what, what you felt it was that those, is it 10, ten years since Spencer Jones, independently like telegraphing, still, you still write a lot of what you felt that work ethic had brought to you as a novelist? Um, it's not just a work ethic, although that I know publishers really like because journalists can tend to deliver on time, unless you're going to I I found that what journalism gave me as a, a writer of fiction was the ability to see stories everywhere. Um, you know, when, when I was training as a journalist, one of the things, the exercises that we did, we were given a ripped out page of an ATZ and told, go and find three stories from this little area. And yeah, and you have a day to find three stories, and it, it actually teaches you to look differently. So you find that you're looking at rows of houses and thinking, why are the curtains in number 42 always closed? What's going on upstairs? You know, why is the the car out there? Why is the a man asleep in it? Why is you know the the shop boarded up? What's going on? What's what's you know? And you start to ask the questions that you might not ask if you haven't been guided to. And so I always say that if, you know, people say, oh, where do you get your ideas? I say, give me two hours in a room with you and I'll get three novels out of you. Because at a, a micro level, everybody's life is fascinating. You might not feel it is, but I guarantee if somebody asks the right questions, and you see this when you hear a really good interview, you, somebody can pull the interesting stuff out of you. And, and that's what journalism gave me. And so, um, most of my books are inspired by or kind of loosely based on news events or things that I have overheard. <laughs> Journalists are irredeemably nosy. Irredeemably nosy. Yeah, I used to have a, an office above an alleyway where people would congregate and talk underneath my window. Brilliant! It was just like the best <laughs> office ever because you would just hear the most extraordinary things. And um, until today, actually, my office was above a hairdresser. Details. <laughs> People tell their hairdressers everything, everything. Um, second only possibly to masseurs, but you get to you get to hear a lot of stuff. None of which I use, obviously, but it's a useful <laughs> springboard if you are thinking of an issue that fascinates you or or just you know something that won't stop nibbling away. Those are the things that help provide the skeleton of the story. I think. Yeah, and and secondly, it, it teaches you to write anywhere. You know, if you are an ex-journalist, you generally are not somebody who's waiting for news. You are used to writing in train corridors or, you know, just anywhere. How do you write? How does that write anywhere? Where's your anywhere? <laughs> Where's my anywhere? Um, it's more when is my anywhere. Um, it is a daily struggle. Uh, I went for several years where I used to get up at 6 and I would write from 6 till 7.30. 
and then my children change schools and then they go to school at 24 7 so that kind of blew that out of the water i it changes day to day i my idea of heaven is to be able to walk into my office at 8 30 and write straight through till 6 30 and that happens probably once every three weeks it just doesn't happen i mean uh the pan in the hall is <laughs> is looming and ever moving and you know it often doesn't allow you to get through the hall um i i just keep trying and i think like most working parents you know it's just a daily battle to balance what you think are the needs of your domestic life with the needs of your work life what i do have which i think i'm incredibly lucky with is a very understanding husband who knows that periodically I'm just going to say, I need to just disappear. And I do, I disappear to, often I go to a, a health farm or something and I'll stay there for two nights and three days and I will start work from the moment I get there and I'll get room service delivered to me and I'll work through the day, through the night, whenever I'm awake and absolutely immerse myself in whatever I have to unravel. Because if you're writing in goods and verbs when you're juggling needs of family, often what you can't solve are the deeper problems. With, with the book and we have a running joke at home that everybody else walks out of this health farm after kind of three days glowing and you know looking <laughs> fabulous feeling fabulous and I come out like this pale wizened hag you know, with big dark rings and eyes because I haven't stopped for three days but usually having done between 8,000 and 15,000 words so it works it just works and if I do that three or four times a year generally I can stick to my deadlines um, I think you ought to have a massage at the end of it though, just to kind of unlock the... My first ever big success, which was me before you, you know, the first royalty check came in, and I'd never even earned out an advance up to that point. Um, my agent's here, she will testify to that. Thank you, Sheila. And my husband said, I think we should celebrate. What are you going to buy? And I think he was thinking, you know, diamond ring, jewellery, sports car. And I said, what I really want is a massage chair. He said, like, what? And I said, I, I tried finding a Chinese dentist in Soho, and it was Panasonic, and it was like, you know, like Panasonic made the best bread machines. They also make the best back needers. And I lied in this thing, and that poor dentist could not pull me from it to do my teeth because it had thumbs. It had stuff going on. And, and so we looked up this massage chair and it was the price of a small car and he said if you buy this it's going to gather clothes in the corner of our bedroom like an exercise bike and I we undernived for six months and then I said I've got to have it we live on a farm I can't, you can't get a massage on a farm you can't get somebody to come out I don't live near anywhere where I can get that done and all writers have dodgy backs we just all do and so we bought it and I can safely say I love that chair like my own children. <laughs> when anybody comes to my house, it's like, you can go on the chair, but don't step on the things where the, it's, the spikes will see. Handle it carefully. You know. But everybody who comes to my house ends up on the chair. It's a running joke. And they all end up wearing an expression I'm not sure I want to see them wear. <laughs> it's quite odd, yeah. They, yeah, they don't look like themselves after 40 minutes. And um but it is, it's honestly been the best investment, and everybody in my family goes on it. Even my 11-year-old went on it from kind of the age of, it would have been about eight. And there he was, you know, all three foot of him, with acres of chair around him, just lying there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, not that I'm working for Panasonic, but I can safely say that's my luxury. That's a writing issue. That's a, that's a check well spent. We're going to give away um, this book of reportage, but before before we do, I just want to come back to one question about the stories that preoccupy you, because if, you know, this matter of conversation we might have, and you follow three, three stories, which, how do you know the story that's going to make the book maybe we can... Was the famous one about me before you? That's a real story, isn't it? Does everybody does everybody know the genesis of me before you? Well, I think it would be uh, such a good example. So me before you was um, loosely inspired by a story I heard on the news as I was driving home with my children one day, and it was about a young rugby player who'd been left quadriplegic after an accident, uh, and who had persuaded his parents some years later to take him to Dignitas, the Centre for Assisted Suicide, where he had ended his life. And I found this 
story very shocking. I couldn't understand how as a parent you would agree to it. I couldn't understand why he couldn't adapt. You know, we, we all want to think that we'd be like Christopher Reeve and find a state of grace, find a way forward. And and what I found was that story wouldn't leave my head. And and it turns out it was partly because of the situation we were facing in my family at the time. Sometimes stories resonate more with me. We had two relatives who needed 24-hour care just to stay alive. And I think so the issues of quality of life and who gets to determine what that life should be about were very high in my mind. But um, that was a classic example of, of a story that lodges itself in the front of your brain. And the difference being, of course, when I pitched it at my publishers, um, nobody was very interested. They thought it was a hideous story. And it was, you know, it is a hideous story. If you describe it the wrong way, who's going to read that? Um, and yet I felt absolutely compelled to write it. And that taught me a valuable lesson as well, which is sometimes you have to go against what other people are telling you if you really believe in something. And and give it a go. And we didn't know if, you know, six people and a dog were going to read it, but actually it didn't work out like that. And it, and it, and it, and it turned out to be the book that really was your breakthrough book. Yeah, you know, you were, you were right on that prediction. And you had to, you had to change publishers, didn't you, to, 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 to get it um, yeah, I moved to Penguin, uh, one of the Penguin representative here. Thank you very much, Penguin. Um, yeah, because um, nobody was very enthusiastic. And I, I can't blame them. I can't blame them. But I knew fundamentally, I knew viscerally that I could make this book work. And, and Penguin said to me, we thought it would be a book that helped resurrect your career. And in fact, it's, I don't know, how many copies of it? Eight million copies yeah, yeah. around the world. So, um, yeah. That's a very un English audience. <laughs> <laughs> we like celebrating yeah. success of the books a little bit, don't we? So, um, so we've, uh, which, what should we talk about? Let's do, let's do 10 this time. So, tell so, who's read, who's read in Scott Fitzgerald? It's interesting you say that there's a debate because when Scott Fitzgerald published this, he honestly believed it was his greatest work and he was really shocked and disappointed when people didn't take to it in the way that they took to Gatsby. Yeah, and it's only, it's been a book that actually gained its reputation pretty much after he died. And I think people have appreciated it more and more as it went on. But um, one of the reasons being, and I, I sound like kind of, I mean, a terrible feminist here, but I... It is quite radical, and I think that may be why some of the male critics of the 30s, again, didn't respond to it, because it is essentially a love triangle. It's between Dick Diver and Nicole Diver, who is his wife, who is a, a mentally disturbed heiress who he, as a psychoanalyst, rescues. Um, and we're never quite sure whether his initial reasons for rescuing her were true love or her fortune. But they do have a relationship based on kind of very deep love. And they move to the Riviera, where at some difficult point of their relationship, they come into contact with a young actress called um, Rosemary, who sets her cap at sort of both of them, but mostly Dick. She falls in love with both of them and then realizes immediately that he's a piece of man. And it's that terrible thing that perhaps I, I found when I was young. I identified hugely with Rosemary. I just I couldn't understand why Dick stayed with Terrible Nicole, who does you know there's this great scene where a guest comes across something dark going on in the bathroom, and you just never quite know what this dark thing in the bathroom was between Nick and, and, and Nicole and Dick. But I identified hugely with with Rosemary, just thinking of you know being the young ingenue who falls in love with this man who's trapped in this terrible destructive marriage. And now I'm older, of course, I identify massively with Nicole, who has struggled um, against what seems like uh, a pretty dark episode with her own father. Uh, it's, again, it's, it's pretty opaque to create this life and this marriage, you know, to have it slightly undermined by the very beautiful, successful young woman who's totally tilting herself at, at her husband. Um, and... What I like about this book still is just the messiness of it all. You know, there are no idealised answers. There's no there's no behaviour that isn't human in a way that is understandable and 
people behave well and they behave badly. There are no good guys and no bad guys. And what, what, why I say it is, it, it, I wondered if male critics didn't love it, is that you think it's going to go a certain way. You think that one of those two women will win the man back. But what happens is they both suddenly start to grow away from him. I think they both realise that they don't need him. But it, it's, I love books that don't go where you're expecting them to go. And that's what interests me about this, which is, again, I think it's going to be a black and white narrative of somebody winning and nobody wins. And, and also, I guess it has this terrific poignancy because, you know, it's so loosely based on their own marriage, on, on Scott Fitzgerald's relationship with Zelda. And there was a, a startup involved, apparently. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, it has layers and more layers. And it's one of those books. You never know when you reread a book that you loved when you were young what you're going to find. So hence, you know, my appalled you know, fascination yeah, with the women's But this one, it, it's interesting because you get different things from it. And I, I love that about literature, that you can revisit the same book every decade and get something completely different from it every time. And this is one of those books for me. One, one of one of the things that made me think perhaps really really through the lens of your books is is that there are I mean they're glamorous people there were people faced with extraordinary these these extraordinary things that seems to me people you are very preoccupied with as a writer to put people in extraordinary situations and ask them what they would do next um, and I wondered what you thought Fitzgerald was kind of exploring with 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 what he was putting Dick Lander through with asking people. There's often a big question about who's worthy of who's worthy of being this way, or do we do we in enough situations where somebody needs to be worthy of us, or we're loving them enough? Oh well, I think that's something that's fascinating. You know, I get I get squirt the term romance writer quite a lot, which makes me want to kick something quite hard. But I think you know the thing that is always fascinating about love is exactly that, is that it's a it's a never-ending conundrum. You know, you speak to people who've been married 50 years and they have their own stresses and strains within their marriage. And my in-laws, who I adored, you couldn't be in a car with two of them because they kill each other. Um, and so that that's the thing that fascinates me, is that within a relationship you can have those extremes of love and hate and day-to-day -day, uh, compromise and pragmatism and tenderness and affection and deep, deep irritation, she says, with um, and and I think what Scott Fitzgerald does in perhaps a more elegiac way is tap into that messiness and taps into the fact that yeah, there's no handsome prince in this. Dick Diver is not saving anybody. He can't even save himself. Um, and yet he is this deeply charismatic figure. And even at the end, um, I'm trying to think what the scene was, but he he rescues a woman from a police station. And he does it by kind of amazing swaggering bit of, you know, yeah. sleight of hand. And you think, oh, he's still there. He's still in there. And so even though he, he seemed to fail at the end of the book, he kind of isn't as well. And I think that's what I love about Scott Fitzgerald is that nobody is ever just black and white. There's, there's always these layers. And, and again, you know, you read something that seems to every time you read it. And it makes you realise there are there are no there are no heroes, there are just people, and that's an interesting lesson to learn, I think, as a reader. Oh, and um, as an adult, yes. as a, as an adult. <laughs> so, I'm, we're going to now talk about behind the scenes of the BBC, came back and see who who has read, who hasn't read, who's read any of hers. She's. Can I confess, I've actually never read any books before. I feel I feel bad oh. saying this, but. It was an absolute revelation, and I adored it. And I, this is the book that I guess I'm going to guess maybe one. This is what yeah. said, I want to do that. That's that's what I want to do. Well, that's what I want to be. I want to be a writer. They have to write for that. Partly, and um, what this book actually did was it showed me the importance of voice in a book at a time when I had written three books which had um, not not been published. I'd failed to get a publishing deal for any of them. And I read this book, and it is an audacious book. It starts with the lead character as a zygote. And I think any book that can start with your character as a zygote and carry you along deserves at least 50 pages of, of reading. And what it is, it's the story of, of Ruby Lennox, who is a little girl growing up in, in a shop in York, a pet shop, under the spiky kind of maternal 
watchfulness of, of her mother, who is one of the great characters of modern literature. She is funny, she's acid, she's mean, she's disappointed, she's married to this terrible man. Um, I mean, you know, Kate Atkinson's descriptions of, of her final discovery of sex with a, a man later on is, is so opaquely written and yet somehow so toe-curlingly awful that it, I mean, she's just brilliant. And, but it has this very clear voice. It, it is a voice all of its own. And I suddenly realised that that's what all my books were missing. There was a kind of consistency of tone and a wit to, to what she wrote. And, and it's not just that. You, you start reading this book and you think that it's this kind of clever piece of literary fiction that, you know, has this sort of bouncy narrative and it, it weaves you in and out of this family's tale. And then it gets quite dark and you suddenly realise in the kind of penultimate pages that there is a deep tragedy at the very heart of this book that you have missed. And you st- it's one of those books where you go back and you start unpicking it and you realise that she's been dropping clues in a whole way that you've just missed because you've been enjoying the language. And, and I thought, God, this woman's clever. She's so clever. And every single book of hers that I have read since has reinforced that view. I wanted to ask you about, so you said that she helped you find your voice, and I wanted to, how, really, really, how did you do that? What, what was your, what was the voice moment for you? Um, I don't know. I, I have real trouble talking about how to write because I think, you know, there comes a point where you just have to do it, and sometimes there's a kind of alchemy that takes over, you're not even sure why it's working, it's just working. Um, I I feel like for a large part of my life people tried to explain things to me that went straight over my head like algebra or Polish. I just I just didn't get it. And then if you're lucky, every now and then something just sits inside your head and blooms like something revelatory. And for me, the notion of voice was just something individual, something that was distinctive and consistent. And as soon as I got it, I knew that the whole of the book had to be written with that voice. So I think Me Before You has a very distinctive voice. Um, and there's a couple of other books of mine. You know, for example, the book that I wrote straight after Me Before You is a book called The Girl You Left Behind about art restitution and the First World War. Couldn't have a more different voice. It's, it's completely different in tone. But what it is is consistent, um, consistently different. And I think. A mistake that a lot of first-time novelists make is they meander all over the place. They don't have, A, they say too much, and B, they don't have that consistency of tone. And as soon as I heard that voice in my head, I knew how I wanted to write, and that was the first book that showed it to me. I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, master, it's a master class in, in, in writing, particularly in voice. Um, who has not? Oh, can you share it? <laughs> Very sadly, we're going to come to your next book, which is Minky and Stitch. We could do it tiny. But we'll just do a little bit of child's sailor. Because, of course, the thing that made me think about your story about Kate Atkinson, one of the things I even said is that it's very difficult reading books that inspire you, or reading books that by authors who inspire you, because it makes me feel like you're about. But Giles, can you ask you up? Is anybody familiar with these? Okay, so my grandfather was a huge fan of Giles, who was a chronicler of post-war life. I think he, he, the first one came out in 1945 and carried on until about a decade ago, I think, when he died. And again, I, I told you I was a bookworm as a child. Well, my parents thought that I should be allowed to read anything. So I bought six comics every week, and I, they didn't care what they were. And I, I read everything that was on my parents' bookshelf, from the Bible. I, I think I read the Bible cover to cover when I was about 13, which I can't tell. Um, and The Joy of Sex, which was slightly less dull, but slightly repulsive. Um, and one of the things that I did read in, in huge gulps, and I've never lost my appetite for, are Giles Annuals. Uh, they're loosely based around one family, but many of them aren't. And they have taught me more about British post-war history and the experiences of the different classes um, than almost any literature I've ever read. They are funny, they're subversive, they're clever, they're sly, they're beautifully drawn. I mean, you know, I'm the daughter of two artists, and his draftsmanship is extraordinary. 
And, you know, we still have jokes in our house that, that there's a character, some of you may remember Grandma Giles, who was this sort of terrifying <coughs> lump of a woman who never speaks and has a face like she's missing her dentures and a kind of dandelion of, of loose hair and, and can strike fear into everybody. And, you know, we have a cat who we call Grandma Giles because she's frankly terrifying and sits in a heat glaring at all of us. Um, and I just, it's one of those things that's just filtered through my life. And, and recently I became kind of mildly obsessed by them again and started collecting the ones that I hadn't inherited from my grandfather's. The only one I was missing was the first ever album, um, which was, it came out in 1946. Uh, and now my children read them. Um, they're actually in my office, stacked on a bookshelf next to my massage chair, and it's not unusual for me to come in and find my 11-year-old with his feet up, vibrating gently while flicking through a 1972 edition of Giles. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of encouraging children to read cartoons, whatever, it doesn't matter, just Give them the joy of narrative. Don't force them to read anything. I got such a, a joy out of them, and, and I think in, in an age where we're now competing for their attention with so many things, anything that gets them just a gob at, at images and stories is going to be a good thing. Um, so your last, last book, tell us about The Child in Time, and tell us why you've chosen it. So The Child in Time, um, again, we come back to your, your term, The Books That Built Me. And I was trying to think in a kind of very immediate sense, what are the books that have stayed with me? And this book has stayed with me, not necessarily in a good, helpful way. But this book opens with a very mundane Saturday morning where a man gets up, uh, his wife's asleep, um, his young toddler is kind of itching to go out and do something, and we all know that situation if we've had children. And he gets her dressed, and it's very tender, this description. It's very mundane and tender of him kind of forcing his toddler's arms into, you know, the, pulling her things up, holding her between his legs to keep her still and her babbling away. And then he walks her to the supermarket, and they're talking about what they're going to buy, and his mind is half on other things, and his wife's still asleep at home. And they go to the checkout, and the checkout woman's talking, and he turns around, and the child is gone. And at first he thinks the child's just ducked underneath the checkout thing and, you know, there's no panic. He looks, he walks to the other end, the people are getting irritated because he's not paying for his shopping. And then that slow rise of absolute, I think he says his chill settles on his chest or his throat when he realises and he starts to panic and he starts to shout his child's name and everybody suddenly realises the child's gone missing. And it's, it's ten pages of a parent's worst nightmare, and it leads you in so gently and so beautifully and tenderly written. It's everything is recognisable up until that point. And everybody I know who has read this book has found that scene unforgettable in, in a kind of visceral, terrible way. And I can certainly say, when I had my first child, there was not a single day that my husband, he used to take my our daughter, our eldest, out to the park on a Saturday so that I could write, because I had a full-time job, it was a long time that I could write. And I, as with a kind of as a neurotic mother, I would watch them at leave. We lived in London, and I'd watch them leave and walk towards the park, and there would always be 10% of my brain going, she's not coming back, he's going to lose her, he's, you know, he's going to turn his back for a minute. And the thing about this book is you never find out what happens to this child. It's the story of this man's, I can't say journey, but it sounds horrific and Americanized and like something structured. And what it actually is, it plays with notions of time and childhood and how time expands and contracts. You know, anyone who has been in a car accident, you know, that moment where everything slows down and you just have that moment of clarity where you go, oh, so this is how it ends, you know, or, or that thing where some terrible accident, you watch something happening in slow motion. And he plays with this idea the whole way through. Uh, and it, it coloured my reaction to my own children. I, my whole, I've been a parent for 18 years now, and for that whole time, I had to fight in quite a constructive way, unspoken, because I don't even tell my husband about it, because he thinks I was dark and in my head. Um, but that thing, that visceral fear of you turning around 
and the time has gone, you know, the muddling of time, you just don't know. And, you know, everybody who thinks that they're a perfect parent, I've lost one of my children. I mean, I lost my second one in a French supermarket. Um, my second one, that sounds terrible. It sounds like I've got through a few. Um, my eldest son, I lost him in a French supermarket. And it was exactly that thing, that visceral fear, where you, and we were shouting at our daughter, stay there, stay there, and running up and down this aisle, and suddenly realizing that this French supermarket had six exits. So anybody could have swept two-year-old Harry up and taken him away. And it, 20 minutes he was born, uh, during which time my legs had gone to jelly. And as an ex-journalist, as well, you see the world in headlines. I mean, that's it. Um, and my whole life, as I knew it was over, and then suddenly seeing this security guard, French security guard, coming from upstairs where they'd taken him with my son on his shoulder, completely chirping on, you know, having been swooped up at a, an exit. And... And it, it could happen to anybody. That's the awful thing. It could happen to anybody. Anybody thinks it couldn't. It's just deluding themselves. And it's beautifully written. It's elegiac. It's about loss. It's about the destruction wreaked on a family by a random, horrific event. But it ends, and I don't want to tell you what happens at the end, but it ends with something so redemptive and moving and beautiful and it's raw and it's um, extraordinarily well written and whenever I've heard people say that men can't write emotion I think about this scene because I don't want to to spoil this book but it it is not a a dark book, you know, it has a dark opening but the final scenes are among the most moving and yeah, they're just they're, they're all about life, the whole of life is in this book and that's not something I'd normally say about Ian McEwan because, he, you know, like a lot of English novels, he can be a little dry. But I think this is an extraordinary book. It's, it's, one, of his, it's one of his early books, isn't it? And what, what it is, I mean, that ending is, is, is ridiculous. If you haven't read it, but you have read other McEwan, do, do, do find a copy. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. You can get a couple of quid on, uh, on the internet. Um, in the hands of a different novelist, what I love about that beginning, it's such a small part of it, it's so shocking, it's so extraordinary to describe, and it's insane, all the meanings of it. In the hands of a different novelist, that's the moment that then will drive the whole of the, of the narrative arc for the rest of the book. It will just be about resolving that moment, it will be about looking for the child, it will be, you know, the sneak the dogs and all the rest of it. But it, but it isn't, it's about how, how he comes, not to terms with this, you know, grieve for those people thing, but how how you how you survive. And I and I just wanted to talk about um, without spoiling it for anybody a little bit about what what went in, whether any of that went into after you. But how do you get that moment? How do you how do you get over something that's so so appalling? I think if you're a journalist, if well, one of the things that fascinated me in journalism was you, you come up against people on a daily basis who are at an extraordinary moment in their lives. You know, something newsworthy has just happened to them. And the longer I was a journalist, the more I found myself wondering what happened to people after the headlines. What happened after the circus had moved on and you are left with, you know, whatever entrails of the disaster are around you. And, and I think like I said at the beginning, you know, Louisa was involved in a, a huge event and I was pretty convinced that she would not just bounce away from it in a kind of romanticised manner. And I guess I was interested in, in the fact that, you know, as I've been saying, talking about my love of the messiness of the human condition, a lot of people who I've spoken to about grief expect, to complain that you are expected to get over something or to visibly get over something quite quickly because people have actually quite a low tolerance level for people being miserable. You know, everybody knows that thing of somebody crossing the road rather than having to deal with a person who's been bullied or divorced or, you know, had something terrible happen to them. And I suppose the thing that interested me when I was writing after you was I have a character at the heart of it who is grieving. And I had a plan for this book. I knew where it was going and I knew various events that were going to happen. But what happened with it, and it's happened when I've written about a grieving character before, is that you don't move on as quickly as you'd like to, even as a writer. And I was thinking, oh, this is getting really melancholy. I need to, you know, just remember. And she just resolutely refused to put a smile on her face. And 
And I found that quite interesting because to me it mirrors how we behave in real life. And some, you know, everybody hears the story of the widower who kind of marries two months after his beloved wife dies, and then you hear about someone who could never ever contemplate marrying again after thirty years. And um, and I I like that, and I I like the fact that if we are generous we can accept that there are many ways of behaving and, and and we accept that perhaps people don't always behave in the way that we would like them to behave it doesn't mean that they're behaving wrong it just means that there are factors that we don't know about and um and to stop that book being too melancholy i actually introduced other things um so there is a grief counseling group that made me laugh every single time oh, i wrote it they're, they're they're quite anarchic and funny um, and it's always a good sign when you make yourself laugh. I mean, it's, it's probably very bad to admit that you laugh at your own jokes, but in the same way that if I don't make myself cry when I write something, it's not going to work for you. If I don't make myself laugh, then it's not going to work for you. So I, I spend a large portion of my day trying to make myself feel stuff, which is quite an odd way to live, but um, quite enjoyable. You made, you made your readers feel stuff. I mean, I don't think there's any finer compliment than hair writer than, you know, I laughed and I cried and, and I felt better about everything once I closed the final page and I just wanted to start all over again. Before we do the questions, I just want to say thank you very much for being such an incredibly generous, fabulous oh, yes. guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing your book with me. Thank you for listening to The Books That Built Me. Jojo and I talked about her favourite books over a glass of Bollinger at Annabelle's Mayfair on the 26th of July, 2016. For more about The Books That Built Me, visit the website thebooksthatbuiltme.co.uk or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash thebooksthatbuiltme. Thank you.